You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Holy Spirit, this morning we ask that you would speak powerfully to your people. We ask that you would illuminate the truth of your text to us today, God, we ask as we, as we study your word, as we, as we meditate on your goodness, that you would, you would just, and you would do the ministry you do. Holy Spirit, convict us, teach us, remind us, draw us to your person. And Jesus, may we, may we leave this space having spent some time with you. God, may, may, the, may the thoughts in our heads, may the words of our mouth, may these things be pleasing to you today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Morning, church. Oh, man. I am stoked to get into this today. So, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna jump in pretty fast. Um, as, I was, as I was studying our text for this week, we're going to be opening Mark chapter 8 today. Um, I, I, I was struck over and over and over by this idea of Jesus' goodness and, and the sweetness and satisfaction that, that comes from just the person of Jesus. And I know that might, that might sound a little vague and amorphous to start there, but, but, but I want to I let you guys know where we're going before we get there. In my, in my personal reading right now, I'm rereading... Um, the John Bunyan's classic work, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know how many of you guys have read that before. It's, it's really good. It's, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant book by itself, but it's this, it's this allegory of the Christian life, and it tells the story of this guy named Christian who was born in a city called Destruction, and uh, he, he hears about Jesus, this, this person who can save him from the coming destruction. And so he takes a journey, a pilgrimage across the land, across this straight and narrow path to make his way to Mount Zion. And so it's an allegory. Every single thing that happens in the book is representative and, and is painting a picture using this story of the spiritual realities of the Christian life. And what I love about uh, Bunyan's work, it's, it's real, it's, I mean, it's genius. You should read it. Even if you can't do like the Shakespeare language, like you should find one with like a modern English translation, you should just read it because it's, it's really, really good. But what I love about it is whenever it introduces a character, you immediately know where the story is going because it'll be like, oh, Christian and his friend Hopeful were walking along and they met a guy named Vain Confidence and you're like, oh, I wonder what's about to happen. <laughs> so, so he introduces these characters and you immediately know where it's going because of the character's name. But what's genius about it is you, you set yourself up to just judge these characters who are the bad ones. And then they start talking and you're like, dang, I kind of agree with that guy. That means I'm vain confidence. Uh, so that, that happens over and over in the book. It's really good. But there's this character that Christian and his friend Hopeful meet, this character named Mr. By-Ends. Mr. By-Ends. And they're walking along the straight and narrow path, and they start discoursing on the nature of faith and 
sanctification and salvation, and, and they start talking about, um, they're, they're all in agreement on all this theology, and they're working through the nature of faith and what makes a person a Christian. And they're like, oh man, this is so great. Like we, We're together, we're brothers. This is providence that, that God has called us on the path like right now to, to walk alongside each other. And then they start talking about, Christian and Hopeful start talking about the suffering and the trials they've experienced to get to that point. And Mr. Byans goes, oh, that's silly. Why did you guys do all that? I'm like, well, we, we had to. Like, that was stuff that was along the way. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. See, that's not what you do. What you do is you walk along the comfortable path, and then when you see, like, an easy spot to jump on, then you jump back on the straight and narrow path, and you can avoid all those trials and all that suffering. And they're like, oh, I don't think it's supposed to work that way, man. And he's like, oh, no, trust me. That's the way it's supposed to work. And as they start disagreeing and going back and forth, they land on this spot. Mr. Byans just says, listen, religion is great. Faith is great. Jesus is great. I like this Jesus guy. And I'll tell you what, when he is popular and when people like him and when the whole community is gathered around him, I think it's great for us to gather around him and walk with him. But when people don't like him, and when, and when people are like degrading him, and when he's walking around, he uses the phrase, when Jesus is walking in silver slippers versus when Jesus is walking in rags. And he says, when he's walking in rags, I mean, God made all these awesome comforts of the world. He made money and nice clothes and beds and friends and those things. So he wouldn't want us to follow him when it's going to cost us that stuff. He made that stuff for us. And then Christian hope for like, man, I don't think, I don't think you understand faith the way you think they do. And as they're walking along, they come along this silver mine, and this guy says, hey, there's a silver mine here. It's free. You can come in, mine as much silver as you want, and gain as much treasure as you're willing to work for. And, and Christian hopeful go, nah, we don't have time. We, we're on a mission. And Mr. Byans goes, that sounds awesome. Free silver. Let's do this. And he runs in there and falls off a cliff and breaks into pieces and dies. So <laughs> real subtle there, Mr. Bunyan. Uh, but but you, get, you get the point. What, 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 he's, what he's saying is he's painting this picture of someone who has a love for Jesus as long as spending time with Jesus brings his life ease and comfort and benefit. And Christian and hopeful who've been through suffering and trials and they've seen the price one has to pay to follow the straight and narrow path, they go, man, you're missing it. You have to walk with Jesus when he's wearing his silver slippers and when he's covered in rags if you're actually going to follow the Christian life. And there's something about that image it's so striking. It's, it's stuck with me this week as I've been praying over this idea of what it means to find, to find satisfaction, to find sweetness in the person of Jesus. And so maybe, maybe, maybe keep that picture in your mind as we, as we dig through this. We're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be starting in the first verse. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles around on the edge of each row. Um, we, we really care about people having access to God's Word. So if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to grab one of those, or even better yet, talk to one of our pastors, and we will provide you with one with less coffee stains on it. Um, we're in Mark chapter 8, and we're, we're opening up the, the first part of that chapter. So the first verse of the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark tells us this. 
in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way for some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. And this is the word of the Lord. So some of you right now, we hear this and you're like, uh, this sounds a little familiar. I think I've heard this one before. Uh, real quick, spoiler alert, you did. Uh, chapter 6, we read a really similar story to this, right? Jesus has just miraculously fed a huge crowd. We just read about Jesus miraculously feeding a huge crowd in chapter 6 when Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000 off the sea, the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, and I, w- I want to point this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us some bullet points to summarize the story, and we're going to talk through it. But I want to jump on this piece before we talk about anything else, because I, I think it's good for you guys to spend time on your own studying these passages and digging in to what um, academics and pastors and theologians have said about this stuff we're studying. And if you study this Mark chapter 8, what you'll find is that a lot of historians will say, oh, 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 this is not a second story. Mark was editing together stories about Jesus' life, and he found two different tellings of the same story, and he liked them both, so he put them both in. This is it's too similar. This, this, it's too strange. This is obviously the same story, just told, told twice. And, and the reality is, that is that's dumb. Um, and and you'll, find that, you'll find that in a lot of the reading, and there are reasons for it, but they're just not good reasons. And if you dig into any of the actual academics and, and, the, and, the, and the, the theologians and theological historians that have dug into this, it's, it's very evident that Mark is bluntly presenting this as two different tales at different occasions for different reasons. And so I want us to talk about that because the reality is there's a lot about these stories that are similar that could make you go, yeah, I've heard this one. I know where this is going. But what we're going to see is as we, as we kind of zone in on some of these key differences that Mark has, has pointed out in the two stories, we're going to see there's some, there is some wildly different application here. And I think we're going to be really blessed by what, what, what God's speaking to us out of this passage today. So, so really quick, Here's the story. Remember, Jesus, we're in this section, this larger section of Matthew 7 and 8, where Jesus has broken away from his normal rhythms of ministry, and instead of traveling around Galilee and the Sea of Galilee, preaching to Jewish peoples, he's spending some time amongst Gentile peoples. He's gone up to Tyre and Sidon, and now he's crossed down over the Sea of Galilee to the south eastern part of Palestine to this. This is the the chunk of Palestine that sits on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and it's called 
uh, the Decapolis. And this is one of the most Gentile regions in all of Palestine. And it's interesting to note here because in the one hand, it's a really rural area. Most of the Decapolis area is desert or farmland. But, but these aren't like snaggletooth yokels. Like these are, these are actually really refined folk because there's these 10 major cities that make up the area of the Decapolis. And each of these cities are very, very Greek and Romanized. And so Jesus has, has gone from ministering to these, these conquered Gentiles, right? These people who were conquered by the Roman Empire up to the north of Palestine. And now he's down in this area that essentially represents Hellenized or Roman culture, these, these ten cities, these very Greek, very, very Roman, very pagan, very Gentile area. And he's ministering there. When he's there, this large crowd gathers around him in the middle of nowhere. Remember, this place is mostly desert and farmland with like cities scattered around it. This massive crowd gathers around him and they spend three days just sitting under Jesus' teaching and ministry. Jesus is just loving and serving and speaking and teaching and healing, doing all the stuff he's been doing for the Jewish people and he's now doing for this huge crowd of Gentile folks. And, and after three days, Jesus is the one who kind of stops the party and he's like, hey, listen, hey, listen, we got to do something here. These people have been with us three days and we haven't had like a single meal break and we got to figure this out. If I just send them all home right now, some of these people have traveled so far, they won't make it home. Like I, we can't just send them into town to McDonald's. Like there's nothing around here we got to figure this out. And his disciples are like, uh, what do you want us to do about it? We don't have enough food to feed. Where could we find enough food to feed these people here in the desert, right? And Jesus goes, how much do you have? They have seven loaves. He has the people sit down. He has the disciples set up this buffet in front of the people of seven loaves of bread and some sardines, which you can imagine is just like, this is going to be awesome. Uh, he prays over it. He looks up to heaven. He, he, he gives a blessing over the food. Everyone eats and is satisfied. And they gather up seven baskets of leftovers. Jesus disperses the people and sends them home. And then everyone gets back in the boat and heads back to Galilee, back to the Jewish region. So that's our story. And again, as you hear that, that should ring some bells. There's some parts there that are really similar to, to Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. But what we're going to do is I'm going to point out a couple of these key differences, ones that honestly I think we would skip over and miss because of how similar the stories are. That's going to lead us, I think, to the truth that God has for us today, the thing I think he's speaking to us out of this text, which will lead us to Jesus' teaching for his disciples out of the Gospel of John, and we'll end out our time today in, in James's letter. So the first thing I want to point out here is the audience. Remember, the first feeding was in Galilee to a Jewish audience. This is in the Decapolis to a Gentile audience. Now, that speaks to the larger theme of what Mark is doing in this section of the book. And we've talked about that a lot. And to be honest, I'm not going to dig in too much there because Mike's going to, Pastor Mike's going to pick apart a lot of that goodness for us next week. When we get into the next passage, he's going to talk about the connections of this feeding with the other one and this overarching thing that Jesus is teaching. So we're not going to camp there too much. But, but to say simply this, Jesus is making a very purposeful declaration 
that the kingdom work he is doing is for God's chosen people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, right? So, so Jesus is offering the same level of care and love and ministry to those outside the covenant promise and those inside the covenant promise. And there is power in that. There is power in that truth. Jesus is declaring here really bluntly, and Mark is presenting in such a way that you can't get around. Jesus is loving and serving. Jesus is here as the servant, as this Messiah, as the Savior, as this King for all people. All people. So that's, that's that piece. That's this overarching picture of what's going on in this section of Mark. But, but zone in with me here on a couple more differences. So yeah, these crowds, one was Jewish, one was Gentile. But if you remember, the first several chapters of Mark, we run into that same mob, right? That kind of large crowd of people. We run into them a lot. And Mark never presents them in a positive way. Mark presents the crowd of people gathering around Jesus as people who are essentially selfish and greedy. They're coming to Jesus to receive and take of his power. They don't, they don't respect him enough to give him space, to give him like space for himself and space for his, his followers and space for his ministry. In fact, Mark builds up this image of the home base, the house where Jesus lives, as getting so crowded they have to put away furniture. They don't even have space to eat meals, much less rest and reflect together. If you recall, the, the incident that even set up the first feeding of the, the 5,000 was that Jesus sent out his, the 12 disciples to participate in the ministry with him. You remember this? He, he, he sent out the 12 to go do the work he was doing, just travel around Galilee, preaching the truth of the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons, inviting people into the kingdom, all this work. And so they travel out and they do that work. And man, that's a sermon in and of itself, but we've already been there. So anyway, they travel out, they do that work, they get back and they're exhausted, but they're also just like hyped, like, this is crazy, Jesus, you sent us out to like cast out demons and heal people. And we did. And like the people are coming to know you and this is so cool. And so Jesus gathers them around and he's like, man, let's, let's debrief. Let's, let's digest this together. Let's sit down. Let's eat. Let's talk. Let's, let's reconnect about what God is doing here. And the crowd is so massive, they can't. They don't have space or time to sit down and actually debrief and, and, and re-kind of gather together as a group. And so they leave. Jesus is like, hey, let's get in a boat and go do a retreat. Let's get out to the middle of nowhere, away from the crowd, so then we can rest and rejuvenate and we can debrief together. Well, the people hear about that and they essentially race Jesus. He gets in the boat and they go off out away from shore to find a desolate place where they can rest and recoup. And the people follow them along the shore so that when the boat lands, there's this massive crowd waiting for them already. So if you recall, the entire setup of the first feeding that we see is this group of Jewish people who are so eager to take from Jesus, to receive of his power, that they're not actually respecting his dignity as a person, right? And so Mark presents the first crowd, and we see them multiple times throughout the first half of Mark. He presents them as really needy and really selfish. And you see Jesus, 
He has compassion on them. He sees them in their, in their kind of scrambling, in their franticness, and he's, his heart is moved by them. And it's, oh, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. Come, let's serve them. And so he preaches and he serves and he spends a whole day ministering to these people. And at the end of the day, they don't have any food. And we talked about this, but, but the custom at that time for Jewish folk is if you were going out of the house for the day, you, they had these small little baskets that were kind of like, kind of like messenger bags, and they would pack food to bring with them because they didn't know where they would end up that night and whether or not they'd have clean food available. And so the expectation for a Jewish crowd is that everyone packs their own lunch. But these people were in such a hurry to get to Jesus and not let him get away and not let him get time to himself that they didn't pack their lunches. So at the end of the day, after, after giving up their day off, right, and serving the crowd, at the end of the day, then it's like, oh shoot, these people don't have any food. And so Jesus, in his compassion, miraculously provides for all these people. And we talked about this last time, but the, there's this beautiful image in that story where you can just see, like, right, you can kind of feel the exhaustion of Jesus' 12 and as, they, as they're just pouring out and sacrificing and serving this needy crowd. And at the end of the day, there's 12 baskets left over, 12 lunch boxes for 12 tired apostles. And it's just this beautiful image of Jesus' compassionate gospel love and service in the midst of selfish, needy people, right? What a powerful story. This story is strikingly different. You remember the first time Jesus went to the Decapolis, they begged him to leave. They sent him away. They were scared of him. They didn't like him. They didn't understand him. They didn't know his ministry. But the second time he comes back, People gather around him. People beg him to do miracles and to heal people and to teach and to preach. And so this crowd travels from all over this massive region to come and spend multiple days with Jesus, just sitting under his teaching, being like, oh, teach us, teach us, teach us. And, and Mark sets up this distinct difference in just kind of how he presents this crowd where we see the first crowd as needy and selfish and not necessarily respecting Jesus' dignity, we see this crowd as eager to be with Christ, as, as, as loving his presence, right? The image we get here, and I think, I think this is going to be where we really find the meat for our text today. I, I, I need you guys to envision this. This group of people, these are not Jewish people. They wouldn't have been expected to bring their own meals. And yet they travel from across the region to sit with Jesus for three days with no provision in the middle of nowhere. Because the reality is, these are people who would rather be with Jesus than make sure they have food to eat. They, they choose to be with Christ, they desire to be with him with an intensity that overrides some of their understandings of self-care and survival. This is interesting. And we see it, we see it work out in the different way Jesus responds to them, right? See, in the, in the, first, in the first story, the disciples kind of initiate the problem. They're like, hey, Jesus, these people don't have any food, and it's been all day, and we probably need to send them out to go buy dinner. And Jesus is like, you take care of them. They're like, we don't have enough money. This is crazy. But in this space, Jesus initiates it and says, hey, we got we to hit pause. 
These people don't have any food. And if I send them home, they've traveled from so far, they won't even make it home. Like, like some of them are too exhausted to travel back home to find food. And there's nothing around us. We've got to fix this problem. You see, you see Jesus' compassion in the first story was for the spiritual lostness of these people. How, how deeply they were missing the point of what he was doing. They're, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he wants to shepherd them. Here you see Jesus having compassion, going, oh, they're too exhausted. His compassion on their physical needs here. It's interesting. And I think, I think the reason is because Jesus, in his tour of spending time and ministering to the Gentile people, is, is seeing the spiritual hunger of these lost and hopeless people right? You see, one of Jesus's main experiences amongst the Jewish people was, if we're being totally honest, spiritual arrogance. We're God's chosen people. We have the scripture. We know what's up. We know who's coming. We are chosen by God. We are deserving of his blessing. And as we get more and more faithful to the observance of the law, he will be required to bless us because of the covenant. And when God, when Jesus interacts with these Gentile people, you see this, this desperation. You see this thirst. You see this longing for truth, for hope, that they don't have access to. So as you have these people who have chosen to sit with Jesus for three days, sacrificing, honestly, like, what wisdom, right? Like, are actually choosing relationship, time, space with Jesus over what is good and healthy for their own bodies and for their families. You see Jesus' response of compassion, of, oh, we've got to take care of these people. We've got to take care of these people. This isn't, this isn't going to work. And so he provides, and, and we can talk, like there's nuanced differences in terms of how he does it, right? Uh, but, but he provides. He, they set out the bread, they set out the, the fish, he blesses them. I think it's really beautiful on a side note to note that we, we missed this in the English, but in the Greek, when Jesus prays over the meal for the 5,000, he actually speaks, so that the Greek, he uses the Greek word for a Jewish prayer. And when he prays over the meal for these Gentiles, it actually uses the Greek word for a Gentile prayer. He gives a blessing that actually these people would have understood. As he prays to God, he thanks them for this food. He provides for them. And everyone eats and is satisfied. And they gather up seven baskets left over. There's two things I want us, I want us to see here. The first one is this, and it's, it's wrapped up in this, in this phrase in verse 4. Disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? The, the literal phrase there, and I, and I love this, is who can satisfy these people with enough bread in this desert? There's no food here. What, where could we get, who could get enough bread to satisfy these people? And then, as Mark so plainly shows us in verse 8, Jesus can. They eat and they are satisfied. What a powerful image. What a powerful image of God's presence and his compassion and, and the nature of his love, right? 
Who can satisfy these people? There's no food around. Jesus makes sure they're satisfied. They leave that place full. And I love this part too. The seven baskets. Now people will be quick to point out on a side note for for kind of Jewish understanding of the world and some of the Jewish religious language that the first feeding, there's 12 baskets left over and the second feeding, there's seven baskets left over and there are 12 tribes in Israel and and when God in the Old Testament, the Torah, when God would refer to the Gentile world, he would talk about the seven Gentile nations and so a miracle for the Jews and a miracle for the Gentiles And, and there's probably some symbolic meaning in there but what I think is more beautiful and what I want us to zone in on is Remember in the first story, there were 12 lunch boxes for 12 apostles, right? But the word that gets rendered baskets here in chapter 7 is actually a different word for a different kind of basket. It's actually, instead of thinking like lunchbox that you could fit in a messenger bag, think like extra large steamer trunk that you could throw on like the back of your pickup truck. This is the same kind of basket that the church used to lower Paul out a window out of a walled city when he was being hunted. This is a massive storage box. And so when you talk about 12 lunches for 12 apostles, here you have seven crates full of leftovers. And you kind of go, who is that for? Right? Like, why do they need seven massive crates of leftovers? Well, look back at verse 3. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from far away. See, in the first miracle, Jesus provides enough to satisfy the crowd and then makes dinner for his friends. In the second miracle, Jesus provides enough to satisfy the crowd and then makes sure they have leftovers to eat on the way home. What a powerful image of, of the Jesus who meets them in their spiritual hunger and doesn't just satisfy the needs of their heart, but satisfies the needs of their bodies. Because this Jesus is truly satisfying. See, this is, this is what I think God is speaking to us today, Red Tree, from this passage, is that your Jesus is truly, truly satisfying. That what your heart longs for is found in Christ. What what your soul cries out for is satisfied in the person of Jesus because He is fully God and He has compassion and love and power and He is present and He meets us in our need. Jesus gathers these people around him who just, who just long to be with him, and in their with himness, they find satisfaction. I love that. I love that Jesus sends them away satisfied. This is truly the picture of our Jesus. He satisfies us, he meets the needs of our heart, the needs of our bodies. Here's the problem. And I want, to, I, want to be, I want to be distinct with this. How many of us actually experience that? 
That's a beautiful thing to say in church. Oh, Jesus is so loving. He's so compassionate. He's present with you. He meets your needs, the needs of your heart, the needs of your soul, the needs of your person. He satisfies you. But how many of you in this room are truly satisfied? And if you feel satisfied, how many of us in this room find our satisfaction in Christ? Beloved, the problem we face in the church today is not that Jesus is not fully satisfying. It is simply that we do not want to find our satisfaction in Him. And that may be a hard word to hear, but we have to be honest about that. We look at a picture of a group of people who travel across multiple miles in the desert and sit in the desert for multiple days with no food and supplies just so they can be with Jesus. And something in us is like, that's a cool story, but it doesn't fully connect to our hearts. It doesn't like come alive and like, yeah, absolutely, straight up, I would do that for sure. No. And I don't want to be crass when I say this, but if we're honest, we would not do that. We would pack our cooler and we would see if there's delivery service there and we'd check on the cell service and we'd probably be updating our emails and breaks between the sermons. We're given over to this world. And so when the satisfaction that Christ offers us, if we're honest, is not fully appealing to us. It's not. Because we have all these things around us that seem so lovely. It seems so satisfying. Turn with me over to John 15, if you will. This is a famous passage. It's the night of Jesus' uh, betrayal and arrest and his trial. And it's, it's the, one of the last conversations he has with his disciples, and John records us some of the intimate details of the things he shared with the twelve, literally hours before his arrest. And John 15 is one of these really famous pieces of that, and Jesus says this, starting in the first verse, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. So whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For by this my my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As my Father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, then, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made it known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. There's a lot there, right? And a lot of that language is familiar to us, right? Like abide, the basic Christian girl tattoo. I'm really sorry if someone here has an abide tattoo. That's beautiful. Those are the words of Jesus. You own that tattoo. (laughs) It's this this beautiful, famous passage, but, but there's a couple things I want to point out here. As Jesus is walking with his closest friends, walking forward towards his passion upon the cross, he he gives this image to them and he just basically says, listen, imagine it like this. Imagine I'm this grapevine and you are the branches spouting off the grapevine. I want you to stay connected to me. I want you to be with me. There's so much kingdom to happen in this world and and for your life to bear fruit if for there to be grape clusters on that branch you have to stay connected to me and not just connected to me but connected to me because a branch finds its life from the stalk they share sap right they they flow in and out of one another i need you to abide in me, be with me, be connected to me, and God will work through you, and you will bear fruit, you'll be a part of this kingdom. And he he says these, these beautiful things. This is not because of how awesome you are, it's because you're my friends and I love you. Because I've sought you and chose you and I want you to be my friend. I want you to be connected to me. I want you to bear fruit and life through me because I love you. This is what Jesus speaks to his followers. You're not my servants, you're my friends. I love you, stay connected to me. And he he gives this image of what that abiding will actually produce. Right? The the branch that's connected to the stalk that bears fruit. He He gives us two things. It says, this will be someone who obeys my commands. And shares in my joy. Do you see that? If you're connected to me, if you abide in me, you'll obey my commands, you'll share in my joy. Man, this is the image of the abiding Christian, the one who has found spiritual friendship with God, who is so connected to Jesus, who actually abides and rests in Him, and he finds this joy of Jesus overflowing into them, and it actually leads to obedience and submission to Jesus as the Lord of your life. We talked right last week about Jesus as the Lord of your life. Beloved, I want you to hear this. Jesus Jesus doesn't get your submission by breaking your knee that you have to bow to him. He loves you so perfectly and tenderly as a friend and overflows so much joy in you that you cannot help but bend your knee. That you can think of nothing you would rather do than bend your knee. 
because of the overwhelming joy that flows from the person of Christ into your soul because of His amazing love for you. This is the kind of love that says, yeah, it totally makes sense to sit in a desert for three days and just hang out with this guy. And then all of a sudden you're like, dang, I am kind of hungry. Now that you say something, I haven't eaten in like three days. That's crazy. I would never do that normally. It's the love of Christ that fuels that. Beloved, if there is no abiding, if the branch is not connected to the vine, it dies really quick. Really quick. It's cut off from the source of its life. Beloved, we can, we can talk all day long about how, how we should abide in Christ and how beautiful that is. To, he loves us so much and, and that love overflows in obedience. But again, I want to come back to you, why do we not experience that? Is the overwhelming joy of Christ the fuel for every moment of your life? Right? No. It should be. But it's not. Because we're busy. Because tomorrow your alarm's going to go off and you're going to have work and you're going to have family obligations you're going to have bills to pay and all those problems and all that relational junk you're dealing with and this person who's mad at this person and this hurt you still experience. All those things will still be there. And they'll feel big and they'll feel real. And you're not going to be sitting writing the check to St. Louis MSD going, man... The joy of Christ is so overflowing in me, I can't help but write this check. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And some of you are like, I've experienced that before. Yeah, yeah, awesome. We get glimpses of that, right, where the joy of Christ overflows in us and we, we act out of that joy and there's this true sense of abiding. You can hear Jesus' words and go, I totally understand that because you are my friend and I do love you. But that doesn't, really reflect most of our lives. Most of our lives is busyness. You're just doing the stuff we need to do. Going to school, going to work, paying bills, loving our family, watching TV, checking social media too often, writing emails, hanging out with family, going out to get dinner sometimes, realizing we shouldn't go out to go to dinner so often and we should probably eat at home more. <laughs> it becomes life. And we get into these rhythms and we find that even when we find bits of joy and happiness, and even though we love golfing and we love watching that show and we really like cooking and we really like hanging out with these people, those things aren't really being fueled by the overwhelming joy of Christ. They're being fueled by the fact that they please us or we have to do them. So what is the disconnect? What keeps us from that? How can we read these passages like John 15 and, and Mark chapter 8 and we can see the beauty of this Jesus who just loves so freely that when people are around him, they can't help but react? How can we read that story and know that to be true in our heart of hearts and yet it does not conquer our lives? When we get invited to go hang out in the silver mine, it just seems like a good idea. Why? Turn with me to James chapter 4.
Mm-hmm. I should have put my bookmark here. I did. James chapter 4. I'm going to start in the first verse. He says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What a great passage, right? Beloved, I want to submit to us this morning that we find the joy of Christ sputtering and starting and stopping in our life, and we find it to be an inconsistent presence for one simple reason. We're really good friends with this world. We love this world. And how could you not? We are the most wealthy, blessed, comfortable people in human history. How could you not love this world? It's all around you, tantalizing you, offering you wares, offering you joy, offering you happiness, offering you distraction, offering you escape. It is all around you. Good things and bad things. It's all around us. How can it not be tantalizing to us. We live in this world with air conditioning and automobiles and the internet and supercomputers in our pockets and the entire compendium of human knowledge available to us within seconds. We have comforts and escapes and friendship and family and beautiful things like the loves of our lives and marriage and children and relatives and deep close friends who meet us when we're hurting. How could this world not be appealing to you? It's right in front of you and it seemingly offers everything your heart desires. How could we not be friends with this world? I think the answer is is simple as simple as our admitting that we actually love this world. Jesus is better. He's better. He actually is. That's that's actually true. He's, He's actually better than all those things. And I know it's so easy to be like, oh yeah, I know, social media is stupid. I don't care about that stuff. TV is a waste of time. Yeah, of course. But no, Jesus is better than everything this world has to offer. 
He's better than the best, most healthy, most loving, most self-sacrificial marriage that has ever existed in human history. He is better than the gift and the blessing of wonderful children. He's better than the gift of deep and intimate friendships. He's better than the gift of a healthy church that's sharing the gospel. He's better than all of those things. All of them. He's so much more satisfying. He's so much better. Beloved, in, in a, uh, C.S. Lewis has this, this book called uh, The Four Loves, and where he, he walks through these four different Greek words for love, and he describes them. And if, if you're into that sort of thing, you should find the audiobook of it, because it's the only, uh, there's an audiobook where C.S. Lewis reads it himself, and it's the only um, recording there is of C.S. Lewis reading one of his books. He did a lot of radio stuff, but he read The Four Loves as a lecture, and they recorded it, and it's beautiful. When he's talking about phileo love, brotherly love, which by the way, just really quick, I know we're in like a serious part of the sermon, but he just has this wonderful English accent, and he doesn't say agape, he says agape, and he says it like the great Poupon guy, and it's wonderful. Agape love. Uh, anyway, uh, in the section where he's talking about phileo, this idea of brotherly love, and he's, he's using Christ as the exemplar of pure phileo, pure brotherly love, and he says the most beautiful thing about phileo love is that nothing causes it. This deep friendship love is a love that you choose to have for another being simply because you like them. You're not married to them. They're not blood relatives. You don't have a social obligation. It doesn't even benefit you societally. Phileo love is given purely at the delight of sharing life and intimacy with another human being. And Christ perfectly exemplifies this for us. He so delights in you. He so loves you that he just seeks you out and makes you his friend. That he actually delights in your presence. And he overflows his joy and his life and his love into you. And beloved, I promise you, it is more satisfying than anything you have ever experienced. And it lasts forever. It stretches on into eternity. You were made for that. You were made for that. Why would you be so easily satisfied by such fleeting things? When the greatest joy and love a human being can experience has been freely offered and given to you. That is, as Paul says in Ephesians, though you were hopeless and separated from the covenant promises of God. Christ, through his blood on the cross, made a way for you to be whole and to be with him. To actually abide in the vine, to experience the friendship and love of Jesus. This is freely offered to us. Why would we be so easily satisfied? Why would we turn away to the silver mine? Why? When what is before us is so much better. So much better. Beloved, the, the truth of this passage that I want every single one of us to hear is this. These people wanted Jesus. They actually wanted him. 
Not out of obligation, not out of like this understanding of, I know I should be someone who wants Jesus, but I actually, no, they actually just wanted Jesus. They wanted to be with him. The desire of their heart was to commune with their creator. Beloved, if you want Jesus, you get him. Pure and simple. He does not withhold himself. He does not put up barriers between. He tears down barriers. If you want him, you have him. Jesus, thank you so much for this space. Thank you for this family. God, thank you. Thank you for you. Thank you for loving us and pursuing us and seeking us out. God, we we are such faithless people. Our hearts are divided and torn. We love you, but we love this world. We long for the, the true soul peace that your gospel gives, and yet we eat the cotton candy of this world. Sweet and dissolves into nothing instantly. God, we ask, we ask that in this space, you would woo us afresh. that you would remind us of how sweetly satisfying you are, that you would draw our hearts to the greater passions you built them for, that we would experience your goodness in in such a real and true and and powerful way that it, it shows this world for what it is. As you tell us in your word that when we When we draw near to you, you draw near to us. If we want you, we have you. Jesus, be our lover and pursuer and woo us to you in such a way that our hearts change and they long for you above all else. Jesus, we need you to do this work. Because we are stuck people. We trust you for this. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.